I just typed in 90s men. Jack, that's a very particular search, and it's not that kind of show. <laughs> but sometimes that kind of show. Uh, what do 90s men do, though? Huh. You know what? This thing just popped up. Oh? And I'm not hating it. I don't know how old he would have been at the time, but... Um, this is not for a sex thing, just to be clear. It's not... Well... <laughs> <laughs> Mark Paul Gosler? Mark Paul Gosler from Saved by the Bell fame. Who's he playing Saved by the Bell? Zach Morris. Oh, okay. I don't know my. I, I don't know my. Uh, my, uh, my Saved Zach by the Morris. Bell. Yeah. Uh, so obviously, he, I mean, so he's trash. <laughs> he, yeah, he's not a good human being. <laughs> no, but like, and I'm looking at like an older Mark Paul. So you're, you're telling you're telling me that Zach Morris. Yeah. Could have been a good Superman. I have too much shit hooked up to my laptop to turn my laptop around. Yeah. But I'm looking at his face and, uh, you know, uh, I would recommend just typing his name <laughs> into Google. That, that would be the quicker. I'm, I'm pulling up his IMDb now. Oh, that's how he aged. Yeah, he aged really well. Wow. Holy shit. So, like, I don't know how he how well he would have fit the role in 1997 but i i would you know like i would i would give him a shot i really haven't seen him in anything after saved by the bell but you know what i'll take it he's he's not he's not he's not Barry pepper he's not Barry pepper and while uh, i my gut told me val kilmer deserves a shot that was a really impossible time for him to do it, it absolutely would have been yeah as as we were mentioning uh before we had to re-record this introduction <laughs> uh he, like the island of dr moreau would have absolutely yeah. prevented him from uh from being in superman lives uh mark paul goslier the other way we can do this is i want you to pick a number between one and a hundred and i will tell you the actor on the imdb's best actors of the 90s list and that will be who superman is um which is probably just about as much thought as john peters went into his casting S- one in 169 <laughs> should have yep. seen it coming all right number 69 alternately 37 um well our our next superman is uh tony shalhoub and i'm <laughs> Oh, that rules. Of a uh, monk fame. <laughs> yep. Uh, and it's an interesting choice. <laughs> but we let the numbers slash Joe slash perversion decide, <laughs> and we landed on Tony Shalhoub. Beautiful. I feel good about it. What about 37? What about that alternate? Oh, 37. In case Tony's too busy. In case Tony's too busy. Shalhoubing. <laughs> Shalhoubing around. <laughs> you said 37? 37. All right. So Figure we just wrapped up all the Kevin Smith stuff. It may as well get that right away. Right. A little on the older side. Oh. Uh, Christopher Plummer. Oh. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> Maybe if you did, like... He's pretty fucking old. Uh, <laughs> I was like, maybe if you did, like, the Kingdom Come 
era Superman, but even then, he's even then he's old as hell. Yeah, it might it might not work. Tony Shalhoub, it is. Tony Shalhoub. Hey, well, I'm I'm happy. Welcome back to Derazzled, everybody. Thank you for joining us here in the second unit, where we are going to continue our dive into development hell, specifically into the production of Superman Lives. This is part two of that ridiculous journey. I'm your host, Joe Nealis, and with me, as always, is also host Jack Halbertson, who is yeah. the happiest I've seen him in quite some time. Yeah, hi. <laughs> oh god uh if you're if you're just joining us for the first time in this series why why did you do that this is clearly marked part two but we were talking about the uh ill-fated tim burton directed at one point kevin smith scribed and and thoroughly john peters produced Superman Lives, which was supposed to come out in 1998 and was in pre-production through 96 and 97. Normally, we take award-winning worst films and fix them, but today we are continuing our our journey to something so extremely painful and so extremely in need of thorough research that this is the most work I put into something since grad school. Jack, are are you ready to continue? No. (laughs) But we're just getting to Tim. Fuck. If it's not apparent, we, you know, we we recorded part one and then immediately, immediately went into part two. Immediately went into um, part two. Uh, so here, but here we are. Um, Tim Burton. I, <laughs> I have watched most of his movies. In fact, I think on my movie app, Movie Fads, yes, uh, he is the director I've watched the most of his films. Oh. Um, I would ask you what your favorite of his films are, but the answer is very obvious that it, it would be you, Batman Returns. You, I, when I talk about Tim Burton, I normally remove that one from the list. Oh, it's its own class. It's its own class. Okay, fair. Um, what's your fa- what's your favorite non Batman Returns Tim Burton film? Ah, uh, probably the one that still like makes me like hit, still hits is uh, Edward Scissorhands. You know, I have not watched that since I was young. I, I, I need it holds to go- up. I watched it a couple of years ago. Maybe like two years ago. As, and as much as I don't want to see Johnny Depp right now. Both Johnny Depp and Tim Burton are kind of yeah. problematic. But Winona Ryder's in it. What, what was that? Winona Ryder's in it. Winona Ryder is in and it. And Winona Ryder's mom, I I forget the name of the actress, but she still, like, when you watch it again as an, an adult, you're like, oh, the mom steals the movie. Huh. Like, of course, Edward Scissorhands catches your eye. But as far as performances go, you're like, oh, this whole movie would have fallen apart if she wasn't cast perfectly. Excellent. Yeah. I'm partial to Big Fish. You know, I want to watch Big Fish again now that I'm a little older. I I think because that was coming off of his most Tim Burton-iest Tim Burton. Yeah, that's true. Um, That was kind of like a transitional period for his films. I didn't give it a fair shot. It's still pretty Tim Burton. It's, it's, it's bright. It's more brightly colored. It is brightly colored. And and not in like the sickening suburban pastel way, but in the like (laughs) natural world way. Yeah. It's also like, uh, I think he directed it after his dad passed away. Oh, oh, that would make a lot of sense. um, Which if I recall is makes sense when watching the movie. Or it's like, I don't have those feelings. So I'm just like. That also makes sense. Right? I'm like, <laughs> see, see our episode on Mommy Dearest. Right. But I'm like, I do like the actors involved. It's a very good cast. And I was like, do I bring this up on the podcast? Uh, I think I will. If for no other reason, then it, it pads the time between me having to like talk about <laughs> Superman lives and now. <laughs> so it's been mentioned that Tim Burton has said some less than racially sensitive things. Yeah. 
I, I'm going to misquote it because I didn't, I wanted to look it up, didn't have time, but it confused me when you mentioned his, his first choice for Beetlejuice. Oh, yeah, he, he he wanted Sammy Davis Jr. originally. Yeah, because I think, and again, please look this up for yourself. He said something along the lines of, in his like idealized world, there isn't like people of color. And I, I do remember something along those lines. I, I like part of me wants to believe that like what he meant to say mm-hmm. is that he wanted to see a world where like racial difference isn't like the like the the virulent thing that it is. Right, but. I'm also, like, not remembering the exact quote, yeah. and also, like, I, fingers crossed, very wishful thinking, like, don't be a jag, don't be a jag, don't be right. a jag. I was hoping he either meant it like that, or that he wasn't using idealized world in a positive sense, but more in the Edward Scissorhands sense. Oh, like, in the dystopian sense. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but Which, like, yeah. Yeah, it's a very white. Uh, dystopian. It's a very white dystopian. Uh, and just watching his early work, you're like, yeah, that's the dystopia that you grew up in, and I can see why you dislike it. Yep. Um, but also, I got my eyes on you, Tim. Uh, so when I Watching when you, you you're like, Sammy Davis Jr. was his choice for Beetlejuice, I was like, well, that goes against what those feels are, but also interesting choice. Yeah. Glad we went with Michael Keaton. Same. But also wouldn't have minded seeing some screen tests with Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, Beetlejuice. I would be interested to see that. If there is a screen test out there for yeah. that, I would love. Just the makeup, really. I'd love to see the makeup test. Yeah. very. It'd be a very different character. Let's go ahead and dive back into a time before Tim Burton said all that stupid shit that he shouldn't have said. I do like that. Yeah. So Tim Burton wanted to craft a story about what it's like to be the ultimate outsider. He wanted to do something unlike any other Superman film to Tim date. Tim Burton, a story about an outsider? What? Yeah, I know. It's wildly out of character. It's bizarre, considering how in character everyone has been and actually continues <laughs> yeah. to be in this fucking story. So, as we mentioned, he uh, he he gets rid of Kevin Smith. He does not want to work with his script. He So, instead, he brings in, as the now fourth writer on this film, uh, Wesley Strick, whom while he's uncredited, was the script doctor on uh, on Batman Returns. He was also one of Burton's defense mechanisms on Batman Returns to prevent John Peters-esque meddling. Because he kept Strick with him, like, all the time on set. Burton was not the only one who was not happy with Smith's script, as uh, John Peters will, will not hesitate to tell you. He found that sec- he found the second draft in particular of Smith's script unfunny, unimaginative, and amateurish, which clashes with Smith's assertion that the studio was happy with his work. Uh, Strick says that Smith's script did not click for him, uh, but that a lot of that was because he is not a Superman fanboy and had not read Death of Superman at all. He is completely unfamiliar with the material. Uh, He claims that the Eradicator and Elrond had entirely too much dialogue and detracted from their counterparts. Uh, Noted that the blotting out of the sun bit had just recently happened on The Simpsons. (laughs) Fuck. The Simpsons did it. The Simpsons did it. Of course they fucking did. There was entirely too much techno jargon in it. A bunch of stuff that he just didn't grasp. Which, considering some of the techno jargon was anti-technology. I don't know about that claim, Wesley. Uh, yeah. Anyway, he wanted to talk about this script with uh, with Burton, but Burton just outright refused. Like, he shut that down immediately, okay. and, and Strick just never brought it back up. Uh, Smith, what, for what he had to say on the matter, was this. Uh, the studio was happy with what I was doing. 
Then Tim Burton got involved, and when he signed his pay-or-play deal, he turned around and said he wanted to do his version of Superman. So who is Warner Brothers going to back? The guy who made Clerks or the guy who made them half a billion dollars on Batman? Right. Now, it is worth noting, while he did bring in like half a billion dollars on his Batman movies, Burton was not in the biggest of gra- of uh, good graces with right. Warner Brothers at this point because Mars Attacks had just oh. had just not quite flopped sure. but definitely disappointed in terms of his performance. I was going to Unde- ask what undeservedly I might add because that movie rules. I think it's aged well. I think it has aged well. That's one of, an, an example of something that has gotten a critical reevaluation over time. Cuz I also did not enjoy it the first time I saw it. I didn't get it the first time I saw it, but yeah, I also I was, I was just baffled. like, yeah, I didn't I, understand the franchise. I was more just like, I like the aliens, and that the was alien design's really sweet. But that's yeah. from the trading cards. Oh yeah, I also like the part where they destroyed Congress. I mean, that was pretty great, right? <laughs> as everybody knows, Nick Cage was immediately cast as Superman. Everybody thought this was a weird idea. Uh, there, there was some fan backlash. I should say everybody outside of the production thought this was a weird idea, and there was immediate backlash akin to people's reaction to Michael Keaton uh, being cast as Batman. All right. So Burton probably just felt validated by his casting. Honestly, yeah. It's like, oh, this is happening again. Let's, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's see about this. Cage is notoriously a gargantuan comic book fan. Yeah. At this time and moving forward, very, just to the detriment of his, uh, bank account to the detriment of his bank account yes absolutely uh, <laughs> uh i think he had a copy of action comics number one for, for a while yeah. that he spent an astronomical amount of money on yeah. similar to his dinosaur skull collection <laughs> uh the man has exacting tastes <laughs> just but you know he continued even after this movie to keep up with the franchise and took notice of a a number of things. And when Superman Returns eventually came out, he had this to say, uh, well, that was a much more nostalgic, traditional approach to that character, and I didn't want to do that. I was going to turn that character upside down alongside Tim Burton. Okay, yeah. Uh, He was very enthusiastic about the ideas that Burton had and really looked forward to doing something unique with this this role. The more I actually hear Nick Cage talk without... You know, being in the Hollywood machine, the more I like him. Yes, I absolutely agree. Especially now that he's like started coming out and doing like those, uh, like those AMAs, like, AMA yeah. style things. Like his, like the earnestness yeah. and enthusiasm and kindness that he speaks with is just a fucking breath of fresh yeah. air. What a guy. <sighs> Nick Cage, we love you. Additional casting that was flying around. Christopher Walken was targeted for Brainiac. Okay. I mean, Burton had just worked with him in Batman Returns. Very true. There was a rumor that Jim Carrey was an option for the role as well, but there was much more enthusiasm behind Walken Walken as casting. And Kevin Spacey was the immediate thought for Lex Luthor as well. Yeah. Like, the man is a gigantic problematic mess. Even to this day, like, new allegations arise against him, like, every couple of years, it feels like. Like, I think he literally this year, like, there were, uh, like, two or three more sexual assault allegations in Europe brought against him. So, I mean, you can be talented and a piece of shit. And a piece of shit. And and Kevin Spacey is certainly both of those things. things. It's also worth noting, just as as an amusing aside, I guess, that uh, Kevin Spacey loved doing a Christopher Walken impression. 
in additional casting, it was uh, it was revealed that Chris Rock had been cast as Jimmy Olsen. You know, it's interesting is I actually when you were asking me in part one about the casting for Jimmy Olsen by Kevin Smith, I thought mm-hmm. about. Chris Rock. You thought about Chris Rock, yeah. which is funny that you should bring up Kevin Smith again because uh, this announcement was made while Dogma was in production. So oh, Chris, no. so Chris Rock comes on the set and, and says, "Guess who's gonna play Jimmy Olsen?" And Kevin Smith is like, "Is it you?" And he's like, "Well, why not me?" And he goes, "No, no, really, that's great. I love that." Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I think he'd actually do a pretty good job. Yeah, I think that would be a lot of fun, uh, especially that era of, of Chris Rock. I think yeah. he'd just. Yeah, absolutely. Other considerations for Jimmy Olsen were Paul Rudd, Matthew oh. Perry, Robert Sean Leonard, Savion Glover, Marlon Wayans, Jack Noseworthy, Balthazar Getty, and a bunch more. There were a lot of people who were Damn. up for Jimmy Olsen. Uh, and the and the uh, the last remaining major piece of casting, Lois Lane, mm-hmm. there were three actresses that were at the top of the list. Julianne Moore. Courtney Cox, and the studio's favorite, Sandra Bullock. I think to go with Nick Cage, my gut says Courtney Cox. Uh, I think Sandra Bullock would also work, but I think she would take away from, she would pull the camera away from Nick Cage. Possibly, which is quite the feat when you really think about it. And given Nick Cage, I'd probably go with Chris Rock for um, Jimmy Olsen. Oh, yeah. I think that'd be be so much fun. I would really, I I would want to see that. So Sandra Bullock was hands down Peter's favorite for for Lois Lane. It was the studio's favorite. Mm-hmm. Not so much Tim Burton's. Uh, when asked about that, uh, his, his response was, "I guess I wasn't there that day." <laughs> yeah, I can't see his his style working with her. Yeah, it would be a, it would be a weird collaboration. Yeah. I don't, I think it could work, yeah. but it would need like a lot of massaging. She's a ta- talented actress. Yeah, I'm sure, it would absolutely. Work. Other actresses that were considered were Mira Sorvino, Julia Roberts, Elizabeth Shue, Jennifer Aniston, Bridget Fonda, Gwyneth Paltrow, Cameron Diaz, and Annabeth Gish. Hmm. Okay. For the production team, there were a wide variety of artists under the supervision of production designer Rick Heinrich, some of whom had experience with DC Comics, and some of whom were totally outside of the comic book world and were explicitly Tim Burton collaborators from pa- from other past movies, okay. mostly from Batman and Edward Scissorhands, and some, in the case of Heinrich, going all the way back to uh, Frankenweenie and Vincent. Oh, so the whole way like, back. The whole way, like okay. Cal Arts days, yeah. Wow. There was one caveat, though. Heinrich's team were, were not permitted to work from Kevin Smith's script, even though they had <laughs> okay. not received a script from Wesley Strick due to holdups with John Peters. Okay. So Heinrich had met and worked with Burton, as I mentioned, at CalArts through several different things uh, and came on to this project after having wrapped production on The Big Lebowski. Cool. Uh, All right. He, uh, they also brought uh, longtime costume designer Colleen Atwood, who had worked with Burton since Edward Scissorhands. She also did costumes for Ed Wood, 1994's Little Women, Philadelphia, and Cabin Boy. Michael Anthony Jackson quit The Matrix to do this after having worked on Batman Returns and Mars Attacks. Whoops. Pete Von Schale and Brom designed a variety of monsters for Brainiac's Menagerie, as did a number Sweet. of other artists. 
a wide variety of other people that worked on this. Uh, Jim Carson's, Jack Johnson, Jacques Ray, Bill Bowes, uh, all did various sculptures and drawings and concept art, gouache paintings and it, things. Are any of those things out there? Yes. Oh, oh my God. The, the, yeah, absolutely. Look up the concept art for this fucking film. Because okay. not only is there all of the work that all these people did, mm. there's Tim Burton's sketches as well in his like goofy ass okay, style. Yeah. One of the one of the other more notable uh, members of the production team uh, was uh, Sylvain Deprez. Uh, he was brought on because he had worked with Mobius, who was oh, okay. known for his work on Khodorkovsky's Dune. He also has a, a pretty large catalog of comics that he's done in his own right. Yes, that's also very true. But I really just wanted to say Khodorkovsky's right. Dune. Right? Yeah, 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 sure. <laughs> but also, uh, Depress was a, uh, a a fresh European non comic book influence perspective. Okay, they, they had all these different angles and all these different uh, all these different influences coming in to try and mesh into Burton's vision for this ultimate outsider film. Okay, there was uh, one other name that uh, that popped up, uh, Tim Burgard. Uh, and I mentioned him specifically because he had the most to say about de- about designing the uh, Thanagarian snare beast. Okay, which I'll say does not appear in Burton's version. Like he was that, able to talk Peters down. We'll get to it. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the Thanagarian snare beast. He he says uh, he, he wanted something menacing for Superman to fight that wasn't just another guy in tights. So he created something that was uh, a Black Widow crossed with a tarantula. And also with like a little bit of crab in there right. uh, with an H.R. Giger twist. He specifically uses the phrase opening of the Yanni. God damn it. Uh, which is which is a very vaginal opening on the underside of the snare beast that releases a bunch of tiny snare bees, a bunch of little spiders. Yep, everything yeah. I didn't want it to be. Exactly. But expected it to be. Uh, also, we've already mentioned that John Peters did not want Superman to fly in this movie. Yeah. Because mostly because it always looks stupid when they do it live. Uh, Industrial Light and Magic came in All and right. actually managed to make it look fucking good. There's some test footage in uh, John Schnapp's uh, The Death of Superman Lives, What okay. Happened documentary that pops up that looks fucking cool. Huh. Okay. Like, it, it, it's, it's just like a momentary thing of Superman landing. Yeah. But it is, if they had kept up that quality of all the flights, I think Peters would have shut up. I mean, you've you got ILM, you're probably fine. Yeah, honestly. Okay, so moving into the actual story a little bit, Burton saw Clark Kent as being a more tragic and broken loner figure that's almost more alien than Superman himself. Burton felt that Superman and Clark were uh, very different than Batman and Bruce Wayne because Superman had to conceal his identity on a global scale, which echoes a little bit of what of what uh, of what uh, Lemkin, the first the first yeah. scriptwriter, had had uh, talked about a little bit. Uh, of course, you know he's a literal fucking alien, so that does make some sense. It's right. a little bit of a little bit of a, an easy uh, conclusion to come to. During costume fittings, he, Burton and Cage joked that they were really creating more of a Superman and Super Freak <laughs> uh, setup. <laughs> okay, and uh, Nick Cage in particular became just really fixated on this idea of Clark Kent wearing like graphic tees to work, particularly with Mickey Mouse on them. Uh huh. Which actually factors into a little bit of some of his, like, more intellectual, like, analysis of the character going in. Because he holds Superman up as, like, one of the major, like, American cultural icons. Oh, and the okay. big three that, okay. he, that he, he names are Superman, Batman, Mickey Mouse. Yeah. I yeah. see where, that conclu- where he got to that conclusion. I still hate it. Yeah. Fair. I, I, I was not a fan either. 
In terms of locations of where they were going to shoot this, the vast majority of it was going to be on the Warner Brothers lot. I think lot 16, uh, which I'm pretty sure, if I remember what I heard correctly, when you see like the Warner Brothers logo and they showed like the shot of the lot and sepia tones yeah. and whatnot, it's that it's like the big building right there in okay. the middle. That's like what they're showing there. Aside from that, though, because you know, obviously there's going to be a bunch of soundstage work they're going to do with right, this. Aside yeah. from that. Uh, what city do you think he was going to going to try to film this in? Budapest. No. Fuck. If I were a person, uh, Seattle. Good guess, but no. Or Vancouver. No. Okay, well, fuck. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. What? Yeah, he was going to film Superman Lives fucking here. That's weird. Why? Steel City for the Man of Steel, baby. Oh God damn it! That's not that. That's okay. I mean, they did say that, but that was not the reason okay. why. So the, the big reason they were going to film here was LexCorp. They re- okay. th- they got a look at the PPG building, PPG Plaza, yeah. and they saw just this full glass black building with these pointy spires at the top, and they were like, ah, you give them grabby hands, yes. <laughs> And so they were gonna they were okay, going sure. to make that uh LexCorp. If you if you have been to Pittsburgh and seen PPG Plaza, there is a uh, there's a skating rink that goes up in part of it during mm-hmm. uh during the winter season. Right smack in the middle where where that was go- where that normally is, yeah. there was going to be the big like pyramid like LexCorp logo. Okay. And they were going to have Lex's office be like up in the tippy top in one of those pointy spire bits. Like Okay. It, I, it's it's a I don't hate it. I mean, yeah. it makes sense for the time period of it, filming. It does. I, I absolutely agree. It makes sense for the time period. And I also just kind of wish that it happened so I could be like, that's where Lex Luthor's office is. Yeah, right? Unfortunately, this did kind of mess with Dogma a little bit more. Oh, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> Kevin. Yeah, so Kevin Smith wanted to use PPG Plaza as the movie's headquarters in Dogma, <sighs> where Matt Damon goes through that that yeah. excellent scene where he murders all those board members. It's a little scary. It was a little scary. Yeah. Uh, but when they went to go shoot there, they were told, no, you can't shoot here. The building's been reserved for another production. They said, really, what? And they said, this is going to be where Tim Burton's <laughs> Superman's going to be. He's like, oh, man, really? And like. Given he's like in the in 2015 in this documentary, he's right. like, he seems kind of like, oh man, that's really cool. I'm sure at the moment he was like, motherfucker, you got to be kidding yeah, me. Yeah. Uh, so that's why we got the U.S. Steel Tower okay. for the movie's set instead of PPG Plaza. <laughs> you know, I need to rewatch Dogma now that I've lived in Pittsburgh for a little yes. while and I can recognize the stuff. I mean, I, I recognized it all the first time I watched it. I mean, I was but, just a lo- lonely boy from. Middle of nowhere, Altoona. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Yeah, you would be more familiar with it. You might be able to spot the church in East Liberty where they shot uh, Ben yeah, Affleck's head exploding scene. Nice. We'll have to do a little tour. Yeah. Other production notes. Oh, so you've seen the pictures of Nick Cage in the Superman suit, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's one picture in particular that it was like went, spread like fucking wildfire. And it is him in like that shiny blue rainbowy kind of iridescent yeah. suit that has like a very crooked like solid red s and he looks high as fuck yes. like his he's like his eyes are half lidded he doesn't he doesn't look like he knows where he is yeah. his hair is long and haggard and like, he looks like a discount tommy Wiseau on halloween oh fuck he does yeah <laughs> he does and that picture was a fucking fluke it was just a bad 
Just taking it at a bad it's moment. Taking it at a bad moment. Literally, it in, so in in the death of Superman lives. What happened? There is actual footage mm-hmm. of these costume tests that Cage did with with uh, with Colleen Atwood and Tim Burton, mm-hmm. and you see the exact moment that they got that shot. Like the flash goes off, and you see his eyes are like not quite closed mm-hmm. and everything. Everything else from that shoot actually looks pretty good. Okay, and the suit that they're actually testing out in that moment isn't even like the suit he's wearing the entire movie. There okay. were multiple suits that they developed for this. For, uh, you know, first, like the, the traditional, you know, red, blue, and yellow, and then a regeneration suit that he wears for like a very brief period of time that then falls away to a darker suit. And okay. then at the very end, he's wearing that more like iridescent suit with the red, with the blue, with, with the blue and the red. Okay. And with this like giant resplendent cape. And like Colleen Atwood went through a ton of iterations of like different materials for both the suit and the cape, like talking with companies like 3M and Given they were looking at Pittsburgh, possibly PPG, who knows? Uh, mm. I have no verification on PPG, but she did specifically name drop 3M. And the company that actually did the costume work, like assembling everything and figuring out how to make it work, Edge FX, which is Steve Johnson's company, uh, which he did a bunch of special effects on The Abyss and Species and Possibly for you and I, most notably, he's responsible for Slimer in Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah. Okay. So this guy, this guy's capable of doing some cool fucking shit. And him and his company, you know, took great pains to make like all sorts of different iterations of the suit. Like you see in this documentary, like the, all the, the, uh, the different materials they use, like the different attempts of molding yeah. and sculpting it and everything. And you see like the buckling they have to deal with in the shoulders and trying to find, yeah. find the movement. And then, like, that moment where you see Nick Cage in the one that actually moves naturally, when he's able to hold his arms straight up over his uh-huh. head in the suit. It's like, that's amazing. How huh. the fuck did you do that? And then for the regeneration suit, they actually went – or they had to adapt a a, a style of vacuum fitting to okay. uh, to make all of the individual muscle pieces. And when I say individual muscle pieces, I mean anatomically for every single muscle – in the human body, they made these vacuum formed pieces uh-huh. that fit over each other like armor, like scaled armor. That's crazy. That like you could move over each other and overlap and everything so that they actually move naturally. So then huh. when you got the regeneration suit completely on, you had like the blue much musculature underneath. You, then you had okay. fiber optic cables that ran all throughout it. So they were able to like fire and travel light and all sorts of different patterns and everything to look like electricity. Yeah. And then you had the the uh like the like the shell of the the vacuum yeah. form stuff over top the process was absolutely amazing and it, like, it ends up looking good once it's all put together hmm. and like people lost their fucking minds over like the so-called rainbow suit or whatever but yeah. it's like he doesn't wear it that long and the amount of work that went into making it happen was actually like astounding i kind of want to see this yeah it's great yeah, I know I told you not to watch the documentary before this, yeah. but please watch this documentary. No, I, as soon as we finish <laughs> this, I want to watch it. If for no other reason that, like, I've only seen the picture you mentioned where he looks yeah. pretty rough. One of my favorite parts of the documentary is, like, at the very end when John Schnapp is, like, wrapping things up. He, and he, he says, like, when he's talking to people at cons and he mentions and he mentions Superman Lives, like, oh, man, Nick Cage is Superman. That sucks. And he goes, oh, yeah, well, look at this. And he pulls out one of the good pictures. Okay. And, it's like, and they're like, oh, that actually looks all right. It's, it, it's amazing. Huh. Like, that the little bit of perception, how that changes things. Johnson credits uh, Lenny McDonald and Bill Bryan for working out that vacuum forming approach. 
which was actually something that they had worked out, uh, something similar to what they had worked out during the Abyss. And so okay. they just readapted it to this to do something even more, I, I guess, time consuming and and intricate. Yeah. Uh, one other version of the suit in concept art was almost uh, like a mech-esque suit, uh, it drew, and it drew inspiration from ancient Egypt, and it was covered in like a bunch of hieroglyphs from head to toe. Uh, <laughs> the actual design was like entirely too cumbersome to be practical, but like it looked fucking cool. Okay. Uh, and that was going to be like, you know, like the regeneration suit idea before they settled on what they ended up actually going with. Gotcha. There were some ideas regarding the suit that did not get put into practice, that were John Peter's ideas, uh, okay. which, you know, uh, he was a proponent of the black suit after regeneration, right? Okay. So he, there were ideas of having uh, the S shield break away into, like, weaponry and tools. I hate it. Yeah, no, they didn't, they, and they, they decided they were not going to do that. Uh, there was also a lot of talk about what to do with the cape. Okay. Uh, they, because you know, like when you think of like what the hell a cape is used for in a costume, like you know, is used to like uh, to uh, accent movement or to yeah. hide zippers or things or things along those lines. John Peters wanted it to be like a character unto itself and able to be like, used as a weapon, and literally invokes the image of Superman using it to decapitate his enemies. So R-rated Doctor Strange. Yeah, okay. based. Yeah, basically. <laughs> okay. Is Benedict Cumberbatch, but he says fuck now. And decapitates dudes with his cape. Decapitates dudes with his cape. Yeah. That's Multiverse not... of Madness would have been way different. You know there's a universe where that's a thing. Don't hurt me like that. <laughs> this, so this guy, again, is proving he has no idea who no, like, Superman is. He knows nothing about Superman. Like, he liked the Donner movie, and that's yeah. about as far as his knowledge goes. And there's some wacky powers in the Donner's movie. Yeah. But there's no decapitating people with no a fucking cape. There's no decapitation. No. There's a moment where Superman takes the shield off and throws it at a dude, and it, like, wraps around him, and it's kooky and goofy the, as That fuck. sure did happen. Uh, yeah. The, like, te- the, like, weird Teflon yeah. wrap, like, cling wrap <laughs> yeah. shield moment. One of the other things that's really interesting about the uh, the regeneration suit, Atwood had actually worked out designs for other Kryptonian looks because uh, the movie was going to open up on Krypton okay. and like and go through the destruction of Krypton and the sending of Baby Superman right, off sweet. to Earth again and everything because you know, like they really wanted to harp on the uh, the origin again for some reason throughout sure. most parts of this production. But she took little bits and pieces of the regeneration suit and kind of seeded them visually in other parts of costumes. Right, that's sweet. Yeah. Like it was just a really cool, well-thought-out idea. Also, literally everybody worked extremely hard to avoid having his underpants on the outside. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's when we're really starting to get to the point, like, pop culture-wise, where people are, like, making fun of that. I know. I mean, we even have – yeah, like, I don't have a problem with, the, with that part of the costume myself, but, like, when you have fucking Nickelodeon cartoons, like, lampooning it. I know. <laughs> I uh, – I'm old. <laughs> so I very much like it, and I know the origins of where that came from. Yeah. And, and, and enlighten me. Where, where, what are sure. the origins so, of the underpants? It comes from Mexican wrestling. Oh, yeah, neat. Yeah, I actually like that. Yeah, I had uh, no idea it was a lucha libre kind of thing. Yeah, they saw that and kind of adapted it. But yeah, af- after the nineties, it you slowly lose the on the pants on the outside thing. Um, and especially when DC reboots their entire 
comic line with uh, the new 52. I was going to say, new. I, I thought I remember the new 52 doing I away with that. fucking hate it. Now, they've slowly brought back underpants on the outside specifically for Superman. And nice. certain artists will be like, fuck you, I'm putting it on Batman. You can just eat my dick. <laughs> um, I think it's the exact like memo they sent out. Uh, so it's like really like in one issue, Batman's wearing underpants and the other one, nah. Fascinating. Yeah. Honestly, the weirder thing regarding the costuming and the character designs, the much weirder thing that people should have maybe taken issue with was Brainiac. Okay, what does Brainiac look like? So, Burton was taking inspiration from the brain that wouldn't die. Keeps the underpants, loses the pants. Loses the pants. <laughs> Straight up skivvies. It's comic book accurate. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's that's accurate, but no, anyway, that's the not brain what he, that wouldn't die. That's not what he was going for. He was it was a mix between the brain that wouldn't die and the fucking walking eye from Johnny Quest and later Venture Brothers. Oh God, I know both these references. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so he he ends up with like a green skinned human head on a mechanical daddy long leg body. That's his true form, and that is how sure. Peters ends up getting his spider. Okay, all right. Uh, however, he would initially appear like a cloaked Grim Reaper, passing as human until his spider body is later revealed. And who's, who's, uh, who is he? Who's the actor? Christopher Walken. All right. <laughs> uh, well, it could have been could Christopher have been. Walken, right, right, right. we'll say. I will say that in in the um, audio drama version of this that I heard, uh, so it is like a full cast audio drama, Amazing. but the the act, the voice actors are very clearly trying to emulate the actors. So like you right. can tell that a guy's doing a Kevin Spacey, a guy's doing a Nick Cage, mm-hmm. a guy's doing uh, a Chris Rock, and, a, guy, and really a guy's sick. doing a, a Christopher Walken. <laughs> but yes, please, for the love of all that is holy, look up Burton's sketches of Brainiac in particular. Because uh, there may or may not be a drawing of Brainiac's weird fishbowl spider head doing karaoke. I, I need, and I need to know that I did not hallucinate that. I'm so like Brainiac's one of those characters that's had a bunch of different bodies. So I'm curious to see if like one of them. God, that is uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had not seen that. It's um, it's bonkers, man. It's, it's not terribly like I, he's. Oh, God, there's another one. I hate it. His ship looks dope as fuck, though. The ship looks cool as hell. We'll we'll touch on that. That feels kind of Mobius. We'll touch on that a little bit more in a minute here. So the fallout of, like, the public perception of the costume tests, though, definitely left an impression on Burton, who, na- who to this day, like, does all costume tests in, like, a, in a, in a private in a setting shame. with just him, just the actor, and just one camera. Wait, he- so did that costume leak occur during production? I'm not sure. Okay. I'm, I'm genuinely not sure about that. At some, whenever it, whenever it did hit, it left enough of an impression on him. Uh, he, gotcha. uh, he, Possibly jokes uh, that he does all of his costume testing in a bunker five miles underground with a single camera, but I have a feeling he just does it in his house away from prying eyes. In his bunker. In his, in his bunker. 500 yeah. miles. Yeah, that's where it's just where he lives. Yeah. Just, you become very paranoid, and it's apparently a doomsday prepper. Could you imagine? For vampires, though. For the that vampire would be apocalypse. the twist. That would absolutely yeah. be the twist. Now, this has been... A lot of fun talking about, and I've really had a. F- I, I feel re-energized jumping. Yeah, through all I'm, that I'm stuff. like actually kind of interested in this version of the movie. We're about to get to some shit in just a second here, but before that, we're going to take a break because we have not done that yet. We can we can feel good for a minute. Yes. 
Welcome back, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the fun behind-the-scenes stuff that we have to talk about there, because we have to get into some of the uh, more toxic and troubling back behind-the-scenes stuff, because we have to get back into John Peters a little bit more here. He's not going to go away, unfortunately. Yeah, I I kind of got the sense of that when you started talking about The Man of Steel, and I was like, fuck, he's still around, isn't he? <laughs> Oh yeah, so I'll get into right, how right, there. Right, okay. I think you're you're gonna find that hilarious a little bit, but okay. we'll we'll get into why later. So we've already discussed how Burton just did not like working with John Peters. Like sure. he, if you didn't listen to part one for some reason, again, why stop doing that? It's not how numbers uh, work. <laughs> but John Peters was a producer on Batman '89, and he rewrote the entire third act without telling Burton. And also commissioned a, the building of a 38-foot replica of a set piece for them to use. And it just didn't explain it to anybody. It just went and did it. He didn't tell Burton. He didn't tell the actors. No one. And it just resulted in a bunch of awkwardness and deer-in-headlights moments for yeah. for, uh, for Tim Burton. Uh, to the point that he basically barred him from the set of Batman Returns and relegated him to being an executive producer instead of a full producer. The artists and writers couldn't fucking stand him either. As I mentioned, there were there were issues holding up uh, Wesley Strick's script, mm-hmm. which he did write one, but no one fucking saw it because it didn't get past Peters in the studio. Okay. The artists, however, really got the short end of the stick whenever it came to dealing with John yeah. Peters. So keep in mind, he pulled all this shit with Kevin Smith with spiders and polar bears and like animal-related action and all this. This isn't so much animal-related, but he did suggest another big showy action sequence that didn't make any sense. He wanted Superman to fight off a bunch of ninjas. And that got storyboarded. Okay. Watching uh, Michael Anthony Jackson in particular try to explain why that happens and just watching his brain melt in real time (laughs) is a sight to behold. There was that, like, brief martial arts moment in the 1989 Batman. There was. It's a, a little confusing, but it's quick enough. You're just like, it's fine. They just had that one guy on their crew that knows martial arts and he wanted to show off. Yeah. I mean, there, Batman has a history of dealing with ninjas, he though. Does. Like, Superman, I don't believe, does. He Why? He would have a problem with them. I mean, he just, just blast them. Blast them or blow yeah. them away. It's, it would be like that scene from fucking Indiana Jones. <laughs> right. Where the guy used, like, does all the sword flourishes and Indy just shoots and then him. Indiana just Jones Superman is, would just vaporize him with Shitting his pants and he's just like, can I just shoot him, Steven? Can I just shoot him? Can I just shoot him? I have dysentery, Steven. <laughs> <laughs> can I just shoot him? <laughs> True story. Uh, a, I didn't know that's why oh, really? that happened. Yeah, that's why that happened. It's amazing. Oh, God. In addition to this, when it came to the skull ship, uh, this was also a thing that Peters, like, really hammered in, that he wanted a skull ship okay. involved. And I don't think he made a big enough deal for, like, Kevin Smith to mention it, because while it does pop up in okay. Kevin Smith's version, it's not, like, it, he's not like, man, he was really hung up on this fucking skull ship. It's also comic book accurate. That feels so. right. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised there. 
so, but he he comes running into the studio or into like the artist bullpen area with a copy of National Geographic at one point, uh-huh. and he just like slams it with a like pins it up to a board and starts pointing at it. And you're like, I want a skull ship, skull ship. This is it. I want this. And it's like, it's a, and it's like a front on view of, uh, the Lucy skull, the, uh, Austral- the, uh, Australopithecus afarensis. Yeah. It, it's that, it's so, so he ends, he ends up demanding that skull. And, uh, Sylvain Despretz, uh, d- uh, does the primary design on mm-hmm. it. And then Bill Bowes actually sculpts a version of it. Like, there's a full three dimensional, tangible sculpture of this thing that exists looking at the sketch it looks like lucy's skull yeah like, yeah like they, they did an really amazing job it did an, an incredible job and like that is a lot of De, uh, i think that is like depret's uh inf- influence of mobius coming through yeah. and a lot of that kind of stuff but but yeah bilbo sculpted a version of that and the day before production was shut down one of peter's assistants came and said hey john needs this for something uh, and then and it's still on display in John's house. Yep, up to uh, to this day. So, serious question. Yes, is it known whether or not John Peters has done a fuck ton of cocaine? Because it feels I like in we... these stories he's done a fuck ton of cocaine. Um. So another story that I read about him. This is not related to any particular mm-hmm. production, but. He got into a uh, he got into a wrestling match in his swimming pool with Steven Seagal. Oh God, it's so in character. And, and then and then that evolved into a like martial arts face off in the yard. I think I just killed Jack. <laughs> what the fuck is this man? Why? Why would you give this man power? It's so bizarre. Like, at what point do you 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 look at this man's life and you're like, you know what, we made a mistake. <laughs> He's going back to dying pubic hair for sex workers. Like, I oh. I do not care that he bumble fucked his way into a, making a Batman and it did really well. Everything about this man is like, why? We're going to get I'm a little so bit more upset. why here. So we, we've already mentioned the gay R2-D2. We've mentioned the trying to fit in right. a little dog Chewbacca. L. Ron Hubbard, right? I guess kind of L. Ron became that. I don't know why it was L. Ron. Like, I mean, aside from obviously L. Ron Hubbard, but like, right. what the fuck does that have to do with Brainiac? So Peters was super obsessed with finding that toyetic tie-in. Right, yeah. Uh, and a lot of like what was keeping the production afloat was deals with Kenner with a you know Kenner uh-huh. or other toy companies to try and keep things going before like Warner Brothers kind of was like what the fuck's going on here, yeah. um, so he would bring in groups of people into the artist bullpens, including his own children, to look over and critique the artist's work while they were still in the room working. No, I it's again it's very in character and I hate it. Yeah. So imagine, imagine like you've been brought in to do this big project for Warner yeah. Brothers. You're still designing shit, and you've got a bunch of it up on display. And a, you're pointing out the stuff that you like, and Peter's is like, "Oh no, that's shit. I like this one." And then he's also bringing in a bunch of kids and be like, "That's really cool. That sucks. I love this. This is stupid." While you're still working, I would flip a fucking table. <laughs> oh, those poor guys. I know. Girls and peeps. That sucks. I mean, it's it's already difficult being the artist and not really getting the cred for shit. Yeah. 
That's so demeaning. Absolutely. Yeah. At least let them finish it in private, and mm-hmm. then you can let your disgusting spawn look over it. He would also, in this sense, try to override Burton as well. Because Burton would go to the would go to the production team. He would talk with Heinrichs and the other artists about like what he wanted for certain things or like certain monsters in the menagerie or something like that. And Peters would come in and say, "No, no, no, we're not working on that anymore. I want this. I want skull ship. I want muscles. I want big." He would just completely derail everything they were working on and like just veto the director's like directive. So how so if Burton was able to get this guy off his back for Batman Returns. Mm-hmm. Why wasn't he able to do it with Superman? Movies? He's lost some of his power because of the performance of Mars oh, Attacks, yeah. remember? Because that was like, okay. this is literally yeah. just on the tail of Mars Attacks' release. I see. Which, again, not deserved. <laughs> no. Possibly the worst thing, though. Peters was convinced that no one in the production understood the street-level grit and toughness that he wanted in this picture. He's fucking obsessed with street-level toughness. Which coincidentally, makes Bradley Cooper's portrayal of him in Licorice Pizza that much more accurate. Because if I'm not mistaken, he tells one of the main characters, alternately, you know, I love what you're doing here. You're from the street. You understand what's happening, or you understand how the world works. And would switch to, I will kill you and your entire family if you do this thing wrong. Apparently I need to watch Licorice Pizza. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet either, but I did watch some clips of just Bradley Cooper's performance and the goddamn. Is, um, is it, is he playing name- Yes, he's oh, like, by name. He's playing John Peters. Not inspired by. No, no, he's actually playing John Peters. Jesus. Okay. Gus is the look down too. Like nineteen uh, full on nineteen seventy three John Peters. <laughs> so he claims that he himself has been in over five hundred fights, and that he has quote unquote tasted someone else's blood. Uh, Sylvain Desprez says that he really wants to see him wrestle a shark, which honestly. Let him do it. Do it. He once got into an altercation with with a storyboard artist. There's arguing back and forth with various storyboard artists and and Rick Heinrich that ended with him putting Rick Heinrich in a fucking headlock while like yelling about stuff. Supposedly (sighs) to like impress women who were on set or whatever. Or on or or in the office. Rather. None of this should surprise me. And I'm not surprised, but you're but disappointed. I'm incredibly annoyed. Yeah, thoroughly. And one of the art, one of the artists on the on the production uh, drew a caricature of that yeah. particular event. Yeah, that tracks. Yeah, it's a pretty good drawing. Uh, everybody in the production, uh, all, everyone on the production team had a nickname for John Peters. Yeah, you want to guess what it was? What? What was it? It was Loudmouth. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man. So it was about at the time that things were really escalating on those levels. It was about then that Warner Brothers started bringing around some rapid changes because Terry Semmel had finally taken a look at things and realized, Uh wait, we're spending how much money on this? Right. And started to panic. And he realized that uh, we're going to be in a lot of trouble here for, for both. Related to this production reasons, mm-hmm. and also some exterior reasons okay. that we'll get to in a little bit here. And they haven't started filming yet. They've this not started filming yet. No, okay. this is all still pre-production. So, Warner Brothers decides that they have to rein things in. This has been basically an unfettered production up to this point. They yeah. need to pull it back. They need to pull it back. They need to make things smaller. So, they decide 
that they don't like the, the direction that Wesley Strick's uh, draft of a script has gone in. So okay. they force Burton to fire him. That's rough. Uh, and they bring on Dan Gilroy, who uh, who ends up basically working with Burton seven days a week for an entire year to try and make this happen. Damn. I forget what Dan Gilroy is specifically known for. Uh, it's a long time to work on a script, though. It's a long time to work on a script. Some of that is also, like, recursive revisions that they're going through. Okay. Because okay. gotcha. as budget concerns become more of a reality, they're like, no, we need to, we need to right, right, wrap right, this right, up okay. here. So Gilroy does complete a draft, at the very least, okay. and which then becomes a recursively re- uh, revised over time. And we're going to go over some of that now. Okay. So this one, as I mentioned, opens on Krypton. We open on Brainiac lashing out at his creator Jor-El and swearing to track down and kill Kal-El. This is, you, you get like the last minute jettisoning of okay. Kal-El off of off of Krypton in his little pod, uh, accompanied by a little toy of some sort. Okay, or so we think it's a toy. Cut to LexCorp goons dumping waste into a river, who are then stopped and interrogated by Superman. Superman breaks into, into a LexCorp elevator to confront Luther, much like in Kevin Smith's script, minus the threat of extrajudicial murder. Right. <laughs> of notably un-Superman Yeah, thing. Kevin, I'm not sure you put that part in there. Clark Kent and Lois Lane the next day attend a LexCorp press conference where Luther reveals that he has discovered the first confirmed signs of alien life visiting Earth, a vessel buried in a field near a farm in Smallville. Upon investigation of the farm and the vessel, Kent cannot deny that he must actually be an alien. It shakes his worldview. He's suddenly other on a whole new level. That, that was one of the big approaches they wanted to take to this, is, the, is one of the ways that Clark Kent is wildly different from everybody, and thus kind of a more anxious, broken figure, is uh-huh. he had no idea it was from another fucking planet. He thought he was just, like, an unusually powerful human. Okay. In the course of this, he remembers his mother saying something about him being a gift from God, who fell from the sky. Uh, this is Martha Kent. Martha Kent, okay. yes. Uh, who came from the sky with a beautiful blue and red fabric and a toy. Okay. One of the scientists at the dig site accidentally triggers something in the vessel, creating a signal that Brainiac is able to trace, and also awakens something in Kent's apartment, the toy that was mentioned. Sure. Superman flies to the top of the Daily Planet to ponder his situation. Lois finds him, and when he worries over his heritage and whether they should be together or if having kids would be life-threatening to her, cue kryptonite condom flashback to Mallrats, <laughs> right. uh, she reassures him that nothing changes how she feels about him. So we have kind of the opposite of what okay. Kevin had put into his script, where Lois was a right, little bit right. shaky on the future of the relationship. Uh, he later approaches her as Clark Kent. Uh, and invites her to dinner to discuss something important. Lois does not know that Clark Kent is Superman in this version, so she's intrigued uh, that he's interested in something besides work at all. Sure. uh, So during their dinner, Kent is so nervous that his shaking leg sends ripples through every single glass in the entire restaurant. Uh Uh-huh. So he's, like, sweating and nervous and can't get his words out, so he decides to go excuse himself to the bathroom, where he promptly yeets himself out of window to fly off his jitters. So he returns right, a little yes. while longer, completely windswept and you know and ridiculous. And, and Lois points this out, like you look, you look, you look like you just got blown by, blown away by a hurricane or yeah. whatever. And he's like, yeah, the uh, hand dryer was really strong. Yeah. Uh, and so he finally does like tell the truth, and she's 
largely unfazed. She's like, why didn't you tell me? And she's like, it'd be yeah. very supportive despite his continuing mounting anxiety. Right. Brainiac creepily reveals himself and Doomsday to Luther at LexCorp, where he reveals he's here to kill Kal-El. Luther is thrilled and offers to work together. Brainiac then takes over Luther's body, melding the two into one being known as Lexiac. Okay, well, that that is not completely inaccurate to the comics. Really? Yeah, famously in Alan Moore's... God damn it. Fucking I, Alan Moore! God! <laughs> another... <laughs> Uh, just for those keeping track at home, it's another tally mark for Alan Moore. I, um, I've i lost track of the number of times we've brought up Alan Moore. And he's not even, like, a writer I'm especially fond of. I mean, I like a lot of his stuff, but fuck, man. He, like, there's a lot about him that I don't like. Right. And his story, uh, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. Good name. Uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's a really good two-issue comic. Um, it was the comic that they kind of put out at the end of right at the uh crisis of infinite earths before they kind of rebooted the whole comic book line they wanted to kind of this is what could have happened this is how superman could have ended in the golden age okay. um but brainiac takes over luther uh they don't have a dumb name uh, <laughs> they have a fun couple name they, they do have a fun couple name it, he's, it's evil brangelina <laughs> anyway, it's a, it's a good comic. You should read it. I don't think I've ever seen you want to kill me more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. So anyway, the two combined have Luther's appearance, but Brainiac's advanced inte- intelligence. Uh, though they do occasionally have two heads, and it is extremely unclear if it's supposed to be one's face on the back of the other's head, okay. if it's a two-head situation, like uh, like the thing with two heads minus right. the Rosie Greer element. Uh, see, in the comics, he just wears Brainiac like a hat. I kind of like that. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's like both kind of fun and terrifying. See, the other option that I had had in my head was like a ne- like a neck head situation, like in the film adaptation of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where there's like Sam Rockwell's got another Sam Rockwell, like where his Adam's apple should be. Jesus Christ. Have I, you seen that? I have, but apparently I remember none of this oh, movie. But it's so good. <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> They've also reimagined Doomsday in several ways. Actually, they never quite agree on what the fuck Doomsday is supposed to look like. There are hundreds of examples of what they thought Doomsday might look like, ranging from, like, giant sewer shrimp lobster things (laughs) to, like, a giant... Like, like a like a double armed Goro esque kaiju with a rocket punch. Right. To what might be my favorite. It, it doesn't make any goddamn sense in terms of, like, a Superman story. Sure. But there's a version of him where he's made up almost entirely of faces. And the faces... Oh, God. And the faces turn into faces of people that you know when you look at them. So, like, Superman's fighting him and he turns into Lois Lane and Perry White and Jimmy Olsen and shit. Like, all it, over him. Yeah, I saw that it, Freddy Krueger movie. It was weird. It's fucking weird. And it's also, like, weirdly, like, prescient in terms of something that popped up in Avatar The Last Airbender. There's, like, there's a demon spirit called Ko the Face Stealer. Oh, I if, think if, I saw if, that one. If you show any emotion around it, it steals your fucking face. Yeah. And it had stolen the face of, like, the love of a past Avatar. But do any of them have a skullet? Have a what? A skullet. You know where you like ball on top oh, and you have like ball on back? No, no skulls. Well, then Nothing they fucked up. up. They fucked up. 
That's right. Doomsday is supposed to have a skullet, isn't he? Yeah. Like, kind a- of like a bone rock skullet, yeah, right? Yeah, it was a choice. It was a choice. Yeah. I, uh, Dooms- Ahead of his time. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> Okay, the next several beats play out very similarly to Kevin Smith's draft with some slight, some slight changes. So before Doomsday attacks, Lexiac draws Superman out by causing an elevator of children, including Lois's niece Alex, to malfunction. So Superman has to save this elevator full of kids. Before something happens, because Lex's assistant lets slip that Superman only shows up in a catastrophe. Right. So, Doomsday then shows up, kills Superman, but Superman also manages to kill Doomsday by causing an explosion with a live wire and a gas leak in the the wreckage of LexCorp. Okay. Lois gives a moving speech at Superman's funeral, and no one seems to give a fuck that Clark Kent's missing. Of of note, Princess Diana died right as Gilroy was writing this particular scene, Uh, so Peters told him to just adapt whatever he was seeing on TV uh, from her funeral and memorials. Okay. So, so he gets this very regal, very large scale funeral procession, which honestly comes across as kind of fascistic and it sounds like, troubling. like it. Yeah, it's it feels like the kind of thing that you know Zack Snyder would do. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Then Superman in his tomb is resurrected by the toy from his apartment, which is actually a Kryptonian robot known as K. Uh, K was actually a placeholder name that neither Strick nor Gilroy actually found a replacement okay. name for. Uh, the resurrection takes place in the tomb in order to cut down on uh, locations and costs, so there is no appearance of the Fortress of Solitude oh, in this version of the film. Uh, this version has K become Superman's armor much faster than Smith's did with the Eradicator. So, like within like okay. the first confrontation he gets into outside of the uh, outside of the tomb, which is with some toughs trying to like intimidate a couple in the in the graveyard, right? The, it, the, just jump right to Kryptonian armor. All right, yeah. Superman does still save a bunch of people from a burning apartment building and resuscitates a dying child. Lexiak, facing calls to install a permanent memorial to Superman on the site of his death, realizes that he has immortalized his foe in the eyes of the public and resolves to destroy the planet to kill him off for good. Sure. You know, reasonable That's things. how you do that. Yeah. It's a perfectly rational reaction. Uh, Superman and Kay go to say a final goodbye to Lois, revealing that he is alive and about to put an end to Lexiak. Uh, shortly thereafter, Lois gets a call from her doctor. God She's pregnant. Yep. No one knows when that happened, but... Apparently, they got down at some point. Okay. Superman then goes to LexCorp to discover that Lexiac has begun hijacking control of the world's nuclear weapons, which Kay says he also did before destroying Krypton. Superman tries to destroy the device controlling the nukes, but only has a fraction of his powers, so he just leaves some awkward mess behind while the machine persists. Lexiac discovers this mess and realizes that something's amiss. He goes to Lois Lane's apartment, pretending to bring her flowers in order to see if she's had any unexpected hunky corpse visitors. While he leaves without harming her or getting any information, Lois receives a phone call shortly thereafter that is just her niece screaming. So she hauls off to LexCorp to try to rescue her. Superman gives a powerful speech to Kay about how deep a connection he truly has to the people of this world despite his difference. Uh, Kay is touched and reveals himself as the programmed memory of Jor-El. 
Superman sees Jor-El and Lara in hologram form, and they tell him that his powers were really the self-love he found along the way, and that he has what it takes to save those that he cares about. The fifth element. Lexiak holds Lois and Alex hostage in his headquarters, wearing a tux and ready to toast his victory with the bloody S-shield of Jor-El mounted on the wall. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Yeah. So he's wearing daddy suit? He's kind of wearing a daddy suit, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's I, fucked up. I, like the f- the first act, I it was there's some weird moments, but I was in it. I was like, all right, cool. I don't want to see this movie. So <laughs> Superman shows up for the final battle. Brainiac ditches Luther's body and reveals his true form: a giant mechanical spider with a head right. and a fishbowl for a body. Lois pretends to fawn over Brainiac to provide Superman the needed distraction to defeat Brainiac and stop the nuke countdown. The fight then ends a couple more times as Brainiac just refuses to take the L until Lois tells Superman about the baby and he immediately gains dad strength. Good guys win, cut to commotion in the Metropolis streets, leading to a, look, up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman! Roll credits. Yeah. Yeah. Gilroy was able to work up a new draft and continue revisions, but then Warner Brothers deemed that the entire project was just way too expensive and demanded a ton of cutbacks, hence the reduction in locations and so on and so okay. forth. Uh, the budget was was estimated to be around some, somewhere between $140 million and $200 million, but Peters says that it would have been closer to th- a $300 million investment. Okay. And I think that I think that's including distribution at that point. All right. Despite casting being done, script revisions being in progress, and uh, release set for the 4th of July of 1998, and production slated to start in about three weeks, Warner Brothers canceled the entire project. They, they would were, never do that. They were that close. No, they would wait for them to finish first. <laughs> Peters says that the three main reasons th- that the film was canceled were budget, Nick Cage and Tim Burton, or at least studio confidence in them with this project. Okay. He also claims that he threatened to toss Terry Semmel out of a window for being afraid to take the perceived risk. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there was further mention that the uh, budgetary resources for this movie were then shifted to Wild Wild West. Burton and Cage were both still paid for the film as they both signed pay or play deals. Yeah. So Burton was paid about $5 million and Cage $20 million. So they they were guaranteed that pay no matter what yeah. happened. And uh, before we take our next break, I want to I want to touch on this quote from Sylvain Desprez from the uh, from the the uh, the Schnapp documentary. Development hell doesn't happen with no name directors. It happens only with famous directors that a studio doesn't care to break up with. And that's how you end up for two years polishing a turd until someone walks away and at great cost. I'm curious to know what you think about that particular quote regarding this production. I'm curious to see how true that holds as we continue our trip through development hell yeah. throughout, throughout the second unit here. But I, I can't help but feel like that might not be quite so true with this particular production. I don't think Burton was necessarily the problem. Maybe no. there were some problems, but I think Peters was honestly the bigger hindrance. I mean, if I were in charge at Warner I would look at the production and the person that keeps making changes to the production is Peters. Yeah. Burton seems to be wanting to get to work and do the do the movie and seems to be taking notes on the revisions that would cut 
the costs. Yeah. But far be it for me to try to understand the minds at Warner Brothers. I mean, they have continuously proven up to this very date that they maybe don't know what the fuck they're doing in a number of senses. So that might seem like it's everything, but we're not done. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but we're going to take a little break and then we're going <laughs> to wrap up oh and then we're going to wrap up this story. I'm the Geeky Dad. And we're the Multiverse Kids. And sometimes we review movies, shows, or books. But all the time, we have fun. Join us every week and um, listen to our show. And sometimes we might even have a special guest. So join us at the Geeky Dad Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Real quick, I want to note, uh, just because I did not give Dan Gilroy his due, before taking on Superman Lives, he would written the screenplays for Chasers and Free Jack, and possibly something you're aware of. Later on, he went on to write and direct Nightcrawler. Oh, the Gyllenhaal? Yeah. He's that guy. He's that guy. Okay. That's a fantastic film. I still haven't seen it. It's great. And it has Bill Paxton, R.I.P. Oh. I think. Uh, I I gotta watch that. So, I mentioned that Warner Brothers was worried about money in terms of this production. They were also grossly worried about money outside of it because they were in the midst of a string of colossal fucking failures okay. at this t- at this point of time. In The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened, they highlight a number of these that are particularly pertinent. Batman and Robin, $125 million budget, $107 million domestic box office. Okay. 187 it's a Sam, Sam Jackson uh, thriller, if I remember correctly. $20 million budget, $5.7 million box office. All right. Steel. One oh, of, no. One of the Shaq <laughs> movies. The, the Reign of Superman the side of story. <laughs> $16 million budget, $1.7 million box yeah, office. Yeah, that bombed pretty bad. Fire Down Below. $60 million budget. Terrible title. $16 million box office. Mad City, $50 million budget, 10.5 box office. Man. The Postman. Oh, no. <laughs> Speaking of Costner, $80 million budget, 17.6 box office. I mean, it's not a great movie. It's not. Sphere, $80 million, $37 million box Eesh. office. Okay. Major League, Back to the Miners, $46 million budget. million box office. And Tarzan and the Lost City. $20 million budget. $2 million box office. Most of these movies I have not heard of. Honestly, neither had I, but those are some hefty investments along with some hefty losses. Now, not everything that came out for them during this time was a loss. This is also around the time LA Confidential and The Devil's Advocate... A couple of other things came out that were sure. winners at the box office for them. And it is also worth noting that some of these deals are just distribution only. Sure. But even so, yeah. that's a that's a big risk. And that's a big loss being being incurred by everyone involved. So while the cancellation of this film angered Peters, uh, it sent Tim Burton into seclusion and caused the crew to hold a funeral. 
Oh, God. Yeah, they held a funeral for the production of this, somewhat reminiscent or perhaps prescient of the uh, Serenity or the Firefly cast throwing a We Don't Work at Fox Anymore party. Yeah. However, Warner Brothers wanted to continue on with the project in some form. So Superman Lives refused to die for a bit here. In fact, Nick Cage was still attached at this point. So Warner Brothers put uh, put a notice on the Superman Lives website alerting fans of the situation. I'm gonna read, right. I'm gonna read that here for you out of out of David Hughes's book because he has it transcribed. Out of commitment to Superman's worldwide legacy and countless fans, and to the potential of creating a Superman story that will push the narrative envelope, Warner Brothers has decided to postpone the start of production on its Superman movie. Warner Brothers feels that at this time, the script does not yet do full justice to the potential of the film and of the character, one of the most popular superheroes in history. The project, which has been tentatively scheduled to begin principal photography later this summer, remains in active development. Warner Brothers intends to aggressively continue developing the Superman project until it satisfies the highest standards of everyone involved. Wink. Wink. (laughs) So, who came next? The sixth writer to come to this project is William Wisher, who at at that point was probably best known for 1995's Sylvester Stallone starring Judge Dredd. Okay. Uh, So he was brought on to write another draft, which was reported to have been pitched as darker and kind of matrixy. Right. Nick Cage, as I said, was still attached, and there were a plethora of potential directors, including Oliver Stone, Shakar Kapoor, Simon West, Ralph Zondag, and Stephen Norrington. I had also heard at some point that Michael Bay's name was floated somewhere, but I had not. I have not actually seen that written anywhere. Okay. However, by June of 1998, Cage pulled out of the project. Okay. So that officially killed the last lingering non-John Peters remnant of Superman Lives. But we're not done. April of 2001, Paul Atanasio was revealed to be commissioned to write a new script, thanks in part to the renewed popularity of Superman thanks to Smallville. Uh, Mick G. Fuck. (laughs) uh, Known for directing Charlie's Angels, was attached to direct. While this was in development, uh, in February of of 2002, J.J. Abrams was tapped to write a Superman film. This time not related to Death of Superman. Simultaneously, Warner Brothers was starting up a Batman vs. Superman film written by Andrew Kevin Walker of Seven fame and punched up by Akiva Goldsman of A Beautiful Mind fame. The studio wanted to fast track Batman vs. Superman, but then Abrams turned in his draft of what he considered to be the first of a trilogy. Yeah. And I need to tell you some details about this fucking script that he handed in. Have you are you familiar with this project at all? Um, v- vaguely, yeah. Tell tell me what you know before I jump into this. That's about it. Just, just that it was happening? Just that it was happening and Abrams was attached. I I remember reading about it at one point and being like, "What?" But okay, buckle up, Buttercup. God damn it. <laughs> the film opens on Superman being defeated by a Kryptonian named Tizor. Sure. It opens up with you know, him getting stomped and kind of has to rewind in a, yep, that's me. You probably <laughs> wonder how I got here kind, uh, kind of effect. So we rewind all the way back to Krypton, 
which we see being destroyed by by a, a man named Katazor, who is Jor-El's brother. Right. And he is vengeful, and he is jealous, and he is destroying the planet with these giant, me- like, three-armed mech beasts called Rousers. Uh, and for whatever reason, he's after Jor-El's son, Kal-El. Jor-El, who is, for some reason, a head of the Senate instead of a, sci- instead of a lead scientist, uh, sends his son through space to the planet Earth to get him away from his, his apparently evil brother. Right. Family problem. So... He grows up on, you know, he lands in Smallville. He's raised by the Kents. He moves to Metropolis around age 20, meets Lois Lane. Uh, They end up working together. And then around age 29, they're covering a story regarding an alien probe. Lois is actually trying to dig up dirt on a CIA project that's led by one Dr. Lex Luthor. He was a doctor at one point. For the, that worked with the CIA? He, with some shadowy government. With some three-lettered organization. Right. Gotcha. Lex gets around. <laughs> Does he ever? <laughs> Were there any actors attached to this bullshit? Um, it's a really good question, actually. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm just trying to put a face to my Superman. Um, T- Tony Shalhoub. Got it. Tony Shalhoub. Great. While they are doing this investigation... Ty Zor lands in the middle of the National Mall in Washington, D.C. with a bunch of rousers and starts causing a bunch of problems. Right. Superman, who had just won the public's favor upon revealing himself to the world, saving Lois Lane and the President of the United States by catching Air Force One in the midst of a crash and saving it. Right. Because Superman always has to save a fucking plane. Right, yeah, they really love to do that They shit. love to do that. It's constant. It's all the fucking time. Uh, enough so that it got la- directly lampooned in the first season of The Boys. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. Okay. That plane goes down hard, and it's entirely yeah. uh, Homelander's fault. Uh, yeah, that tracks. Anyway, after this battle with Ty Zor on the National Mall, public opinion of Superman quickly changes to him being an illegal alien who brought a terrorist war to their doorstep. Somewhere in between there... The reveal of his son being a superhero causes so much stress that Pa Kent has a fatal coronary. He, he does do that a lot. Yeah, he just has heart attacks and dies all the just time. Like that's what you, he's like. Fatherly advice: heart attacks. That's all you need to know about John Kent. <laughs> Uh, so Superman does try to, like, retire from the superhero life until Ma Kent talks him out of it. Sure. Yeah, and then all the Ty Zor nonsense happens. Uh, and then at some point he decides to return to Krypton to... I thought Krypton was blown to smithereens. No, as it turns out, it's fucking not. So he goes back right. to Krypton and he learns from his dad, who's alive. His parents are alive. He learns that he was, that he was actually a prince of prophecy who is supposed to cause... Like I don't even know if I can so fucking continue. I don't even know if I can continue with this. It's, it's so, so fucking dumb. dumb. It's one of the worst oh things I've ever heard. God, you know what? Why? I, there was one other detail that I will get to. So, w- Superman's suit, for whatever reason, is missing chunks of its shield. Okay. And as it turns out, Martha Kent just has them lying around because they were given to her by Jor-El when he came and visited them, asking the Kents. To care for his son before he was sent to Earth. Did you just burp? 
other directions. <laughs> it is astounding to me that anyone lets J.J. Abrams do anything. <laughs> you broke me. You bro- I don't know. How the fuck do you think I felt reading that the first time? <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Oh, I I need to amend one thing regarding the the uh, the Abrams script. All right. He didn't he didn't go directly to Krypton. He communed with Jor-El in a white infinity space known as the Infinity Timeless. That's, that's worse. That's that is worse. worse. That it's is... dumber. It <sighs> Okay, all right. It's we're almost there. <laughs> this movie feels like it has like six acts and it's supposed to be the first part of a fucking trilogy. Like I know that Abrams consistently makes money and that's why they always give him more projects. He uh, he tends to work with other creatives though. He doesn't usually go go it alone. Okay, so Paul Atanasio's script gets completely jettisoned because of the, because of the the struggle between Batman versus Superman and the J.J. Abrams joint. Okay, it comes down to the studio's executives voting to decide which one they're going to do. Because again, they were going to fast track Batman versus Superman. And given the writing pedigree behind that one, I wish I could have seen that script. But there's an X factor. John fucking Peters thinks J.J. Abrams' script is brilliant. He fucking loves it, and he sways the opinions of the rest of the of, of the executives, and they vote in favor of doing his story. So Batman vs. Superman gets shelved. Part of the rationale is, no, we should really reintroduce Superman before we go full Batman versus Superman. Which, sure, I guess I can see some rationale for that. But this script fucking sucks. There's no way it's going to be good. McGee gets attached to the Abrams script. He's the first one that's uh, the first one to go for it. And it's then announced that they're going to be filming in Australia. Uh huh. And he, he decides, nope, that doesn't sound right to me. We can't do that because it feels wrong to film a Superman movie not in America. And then later everyone learns he's afraid of flying. So just. Right. Okay. Yeah. This, it not not going to happen. So he's off the project. You know who they get to replace him? Who? who? You've seen X-Men 3, right? Fuck. Fuck. I was like, who's shittier than McG? Brett. Ratner. <laughs> they are uh, colleagues, uh, if I believe. I'm not if surprised. I, I'm, I kind of all come from the same stagnant water pool full of mosquito eggs. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. yeah, so Brett Ratner's super pumped to go and give this a shot. Great. And had he done X3 at this point? No, he had not done X3 at this point because X2 had just come out, basically. Okay. So Brian Singer has caught wind of a lot of this. He's been following this production for a very long time, actually. Right. Largely because he's friends with Kevin Spacey. And <laughs> he learned early on in the process from Kevin Spacey what had gone wrong with the Burton version of this. Right. Why it hadn't happened and what was going on up to that point. Because there was never a point where Kevin Spacey was not attached. He he was just asked, you want to play Lex Luthor? And he said, yep. <laughs> he's and just been, like, just waiting kind of waited. And... He, to- he apparently told this to Singer at a, at a Bob Dylan concert. He just had time at a Bob Dylan show to explain all My of this. Brains, what? It's th- this whole fucking story feels like a Mad Lib. It's it's nonsense. So Brett Ratner ends up dropping out of Superman, 
Because he wants to go ruin the X-Men franchise. Basically. And the one thing that Brian Singer would leave X-Men for was Superman. Superman. Who was one of the producers on the X-Men films up to that point? Donner. Fuck. It's... I forget her first name. Because the Donners are buddies with Brian Singer. Yes. Fuck, I forgot about that. That's precisely, precisely correct. Lauren Schuler Donner. Yeah, that's what it is. Yep. She was a producer who had the connection with Singer and, of course, introduced him yeah. to her husband. And Singer was able to pitch directly to him, you know, if I was going to do a, a, a Superman film, I would make it kind of a vague sequel to yours. Yeah. And that's how we ended up with Superman Returns. Something to note regarding Superman Returns, there were several points during production where WB wanted to curb some ideas or change some or change some things uh-huh. what they saw with the script. When that happened, Brian Singer would pick up his Bible and out of the back of it, I mean like, like the movie Bible, like not, oh, not, not, okay. not, not, not like not like a Christian not, Bible, not like holy his, Bible. his production Bible. I was like, does he keep a gun in there? <laughs> <laughs> that would be the only thing he keeps in the. Uh, yes, uh, so he pulls out his production Bible, and out of the back of it, he removes a photograph. Uh huh. A photograph of Nicolas Cage with his eyes half lidded and his Superman S shield all askance on a shiny, yeah, shiny suit with his long hair. And he says, you guys were going to produce this. Wow. So he got his way on this film largely by perpetuating a fluke of a perception of Tim Burton's work. Someone on a film set took a picture Yep. at just a second. By ch- total chance. Total chance. That photo made it to the public. And, and then made it to Brian Singer. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. It's such a weird, stupid story. Yeah. It's a really it's a really weird stupid story. There's there's one one more aspect that I want to that I want to touch on with this though. And it, it it feels right to wrap this up with John Peters. Yeah. So, we know we know that right after Superman lives, Peters tried to produce a Sandman film. Yeah. As we just found out a little bit ago, yeah. and Neil Gaiman tanked the fuck out of that by leaking the script, which he says is the worst script he's ever read. Which sounds as though it was written by Peters. That's the vibe I was getting. Yeah. And he leaked it to Ain't It Cool News, and it got eviscerated and absolutely ended any chance of that happening. However, he was still attached as a producer for Superman through all these iterations. Okay. Hence how he went to bat for J.J. Abrams. And he was still on whenever it came to Superman Returns. Okay. He never set foot on that set. Because they cut them off. His feet. No. Oh. Well, maybe. But then they molded him new ones. <laughs> okay. Out of money. Oh, no. They paid him not to go anywhere near Holy that production. Holy shit. That's the only way that would work. It's the only way that would work. And you know when else that happened? Man of Steel. Man of Steel. Christopher Nolan specifically said he is not to be anywhere near this production. Between those two movies, he got paid $85 million to do nothing. You know what his response to that was? I, 
I think I do. What do you think it was? I'm the Donald Trump of... It was a very Trumpian response. Okay. It was... They're scared of my influence. Yeah. Yeah, that's what he would say. That is what he... That is indeed what he did say. And they would tussle with Steven Seagal. And he would, and and he would wrestle Steven Seagal. Children's pull full of cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> that... As they say is that. Do you know what John Peters reminds me of? Let me tell you a little story about young Jack trying to make uh, <laughs> oh, no. make money to buy Star Wars action figures. <laughs> One of my chores was to clean up the dog shit in the yard. Sure. And it was gross. And I would take a grocery bag, like a plastic bag, and I would, you know, put it on my hand and grab the poop and then yeah. turn it inside out. And you sold it as fertilizer. <laughs> I'm the Donald Trump dog shit. (laughs) (laughs) And if the dog shit was hard, because it had been in the baking summer sun. You sold it as hockey pucks. I sold it as hockey pucks. (laughs) Then it was fine. Yeah. No problem. Oh, yeah. That's way easier. Um, If it was fresh, moist, it's worse. If it was a wet one. If it was a wet one, you had to like... Dig it out of the grass. Yeah, yeah it gets all it stuck in there. John Peters well, is just... neither of those things. No. What... John Peters is the dog turd that's hard on the outside. And you're like, okay, this isn't so bad. And then it squishes on the inside. And then you grab it with your hand and it squishes. And you're like, fuck. Yep. This is so much worse than I thought it was going to be. Yep. That is John Peters. <laughs> that is John Peters. <laughs> this is 100% John Peters. <laughs> oh, my God. Just, you know, I listened to a couple of podcasts that also addressed this, uh, this, this would be film. Sure. Uh, and specifically, I think it was the, how did this not get made podcast? Okay. Which did an amazing job with their, with their approach. And also apparently got a chance to interview John Schnapp before he died, which oh, okay. was very, cool. very good, which is very cool. Uh, and I want to thank them for their work on their, on their show. Um, they, they put forward the idea they don't think it's possible to do a good super a Superman movie anymore, and I I don't want to believe that. I think it's still possible. I don't think it's going to happen under Warner Brothers currently. No, especially not with the current regime. Yeah, I think it might be a long time down the road, but I think it's still possible. And I, you know what? Especially after learning this story, I I yearn, I yearn for it. I want it so fucking bad. Superman is a difficult character to grasp, to comprehend. Yeah. Way harder to understand than Batman. Yeah, I agree. And throughout the different versions of the script that you've told me over the last two episodes, there have been aspects of it that I think get him. And even in the the comics that I've read that I've I've enjoyed that are Superman comics... One of the ones that's always mentioned is All-Star Superman by Grant Morrison. Which you had me read, and it was the first Superman book I loved. Yeah, it's phenomenal. It's so good. But it would not be a good... I mean, they actually have made an animated movie of it, it's kind of cool. Right. But it's not a Hollywood movie of Superman. Yeah. that I would absolutely love to see them take a crack at something like that, though. Or even oh, just yeah. even just give Morrison the chance to like do something. You know what movie he was supposed to to write and did a draft of? The Flash. No, really? Yeah. 
fuck. He was working with Ezra Miller. I think they got a draft done. And then there's been so many different directors attached to that movie that his there might be like 2% of his script in there. But oh, my God. Yeah. They've been trying to get into television for a long time. And they did do a season of Happy, which was surprisingly yeah, good. Yeah, I, I, I watched, I, I didn't see the entire first season, but I saw like the first few episodes. I'm like, this is really good. Yeah. I, I wanted to keep up with it, but I haven't yet. It got canceled after the second season. Yeah. But that was, it was Christopher Maloney and Patton Oswalt, if I remember correctly, right? As the voice of his imaginary uh, yeah. unicorn friend. The, this like era of Patton Oswalt and voice acting makes me so happy. Yeah. I think that if you were going to get somebody a comic book person involved to do the the script you would go with dan jurgens dan jurgens okay um he's been writing superman since the 90s he was part of the person that was involved in death of superman the whole way up yeah i was gonna say i thought i recognized that Mm -hmm. name there we go and he damn i didn't credit the actual writers of the fucking book but (laughs) he it's, this does not happen very often. Normally, like, you have a, a writer that's really good at a certain era of time. That's it. Like, yeah. they've done the thing. He came back to rewrite, or not rewrite, but he came back to write Superman in this newest iteration. I think the, the Rebirth era. Yeah. Uh, which brings back the Clark Kent that we, we grew up with. The one that did die yeah. from Doomsday. And it's pretty good. It's real good. They actually gave Superman a son. And yeah, it's a lot of fun. Like, seeing Superman as a dad, I think, might be the way in. I like that. So, uh, Superman's son is named John after... Yeah. Yeah. And through comic book fuckery, he is now aged up to the age of a teenager. And he has his own comic book right now called, like, Son of Superman. It's written by Tom Taylor, who's phenomenal. I love him. D- didn't he come out as bi? He came out as bi. Yeah. And... Clark is just, like, super fucking supportive. I love it. He's actually stepped away from being the Superman for a minute. Yeah. Let his son kind of step forward, experience what it's like to be a superhero and be responsible. Uh, I, I want to read that so badly. Yeah, well, that sounds really good. Um, he's like, I got to go deal with some bullshit on War World with Mongol. He's an <laughs> asshole. You know how it is. But, like, your mom's here. We love you. We support you. I'll be back. That rules. Yeah, no, I'm like, that's, uh, I never thought I'd want to see a Superman who's like the dad of a kid. Yeah. But <laughs> now it works really well. It's, that's amazing. Um, I, see, that is, is that kind of shit that gives me hope that like there is material that could be put together to make a, a, a compelling, yeah. good quality Superman film. Like, it's uh, the, the landscape of Warner Brothers. DC universe right now is all over the fucking place. Some yeah. of it's really enjoyable. Harley Quinn animated series, Doom Patrol series. I still gotta watch um, Doom Patrol it's, uh, and Harley Quinn, but yeah, they're they're both very fun. Yeah, I mean, hell, like, a, a bunch of the stuff that they produce through HBO is fucking amazing. Yeah, which I mean, is why I'm nervous. Yeah, like it. <sighs> I'm honestly surprised you got three seasons out of Doom Patrol. It's such a weird fucking series. Yeah. I was reading something by the creator of the show Infinity Train. Oh, yeah. Because that's one of the shows that's being pulled I off. watched the first season. I really enjoyed it. I Same. I watched the first season just recently. I was like, man, I can't wait to jump into season two. Yeah. And I find out it got pulled at the end of last week. Like, what the fuck? And he broke down really effectively, like, why this is such a big deal for creators. How, like, it's not that it's cutting out residuals and whatnot. It's that right. those residuals were going toward their union yeah. health care. Yeah. And all that kind of shit. And it's like, you were 
like this is, these are decisions that are saving nothing basically yeah. for Warner Brothers Discovery and are directly having negative impacts on creators. Yeah, it, it is and like animators already don't really make that much money. Yeah, and how and then they get put through like such intense fucking conditions. Yeah, from like I mean, like for visual artists and designers going through crunch hours and yeah. shit. Like there's stories of the first Gundam, Gundam 1979. Yeah, animators working themselves to literally being taken to the hospital and they're like no i wanted to make it perfect and like eh, well, pretty, pretty cool stuff yeah. but also don't <laughs> land yourself in the hospital yeah like, oh my god like it's so frustrating because like you see how much these people care about what they create and the impact that it has on people and to see it just thrown away yeah. on a, on a whim for it a, feels a like. tax break, and I mean, for like the Infinity Train stuff, like that's that doesn't get them a tax break. That's so yeah, fucking it's weird. just it's just I I think Batgirl and Scoob that get them a tax break because those won't see release. Yeah, and to my understanding, can't see release at least in the case of Batgirl because they deleted the footage from the fucking servers. Oh my god, I didn't know that. Yeah, Holy one of the directors. Yeah, one of the directors tried to log in to save the footage from the server so that at least they had it and it was gone oh, already. I want to vomit. It makes me yeah. It makes oh, me fucking god. sick. That why would you do that? Why would you? Ninety million dollars. I mean, like even if it was an absolute piece of shit. Which I don't think it was. Uh, there was the only source that claimed it was like, irrepli- like irrevocably bad or whatever mm. was the fucking New York Post, which is a fucking tabloid rag. It, and like it was like test screeners didn't enjoy it. And test screeners, test screeners don't fucking, like anything. Test screeners didn't like the ending of 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 seven. Yeah. T- test screeners didn't like a whole bunch of fucking shit that turned out to be fucking great. They loved the Justice League movie that Joss Whedon directed. <laughs> God. So, but to just delete all of that work? Holy fuck. It's an absolutely disturbing trend. And it, I I hope I hope that they fucking learn something from the outcry from viewers and subscribers and creators and showrunners and everyone who is so fucking pissed off about this shit. As soon as they pull the plug on Doom Patrol and Holly Quinn, I'm done. Like that's it. If me. if they if they cancel the Venture Brothers and yeah. uh and and Metalocalypse films, I, I I'm done. I, I don't give a shit at that point. I as much as I love a, a lot of the content that's on there, yeah. you've you've you have poisoned the well for me. Yeah. Fuck. It, <laughs> I I wonder what it would be like to live in a country that has a monthly stipend for artists who has easily obtainable grants yeah where the goal of creating whatever you're creating isn't to make that money back at the box office it's to, it's to contribute to the culture it's to, right yeah it, it's to it's to enrich the lives of other people yeah like i'm i'm sure that he's made money but i feel like <laughs> wes anderson films have found <laughs> their audience but also like I'm sure he's comfortable. I'm sure he's made plenty of right, money. Right, <laughs> right. It wouldn't, like, I feel like we would have more, obs- not obscure, but, like, different types of art and storytelling. Yeah. <sighs> Fuck. So we keep getting fucking J.J. Abrams. We keep getting J.J. Abrams. Yeah, I watched all of Lost. Yeah, me too, but, like. I didn't need to. I, I really didn't. I could have stopped that first season and been happy. Yeah. Well. 
<laughs> Guess I'm gonna go write some more knife breaker comics. <laughs> Make no money there. We're uh, already making no money. That's fine. <laughs> I will continue to not make any money. That's that is what we do best and what we will keep doing for all of you here. So that is the Durazzle guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. On that note, thank you all for taking this fucking odyssey of a journey with us. <laughs> oh. Did you have fun, Jack? Some. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I admit it came down into more of a downer at the end than I was anticipating, yeah. but... What I what I really enjoyed was I knew all of these puzzle pieces, mm-hmm. and I didn't know how they connected, and I'm like, oh, there's so much cause and effect the mm-hmm. whole way through. There is. It's kind of wild. And uh, I, I was stressed the fuck out, but I had a lot of fun researching yeah. this and putting it together. So uh, thank you all for listening and giving us the opportunity to do that. If you enjoyed this or if you enjoyed any of our episodes, please rate and review fucking everywhere so people have a better chance of discovering us. Uh, it really does make a difference. It does help us out. And it just it, it touches us. It means a lot to us. Please follow us on social media at Derazzled Pod on Twitter, Derazzled Podcast on Facebook, Derazzled underscore podcast on Instagram and Dullboy underscore Jack on TikTok, as well as Derazzled on YouTube. Uh, I think we're going to be having Xanadu. Is yeah. I think the next episode mm-hmm. that's going to be coming out with our good friend Caleb Figgles from Making, Making a Martini. A martini. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll probably be drunk for for that episode. God willing. God. <laughs> uh, and then after that, I think after that, I think we're going to be coming up on Halloween, Halloween time. Stuff, yeah. So we will probably be setting development hell aside for a little bit to do, do some spooky some shit. spooky shit. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's only August, and I, as as we're recording this, and I'm already in spooky mode, and I'm thrilled. I saw a 12 foot tall skeleton at Lowe's the other day, and it just made my heart sing. How many baseball tees do we have to sell <laughs> to, to be able to afford that? That's a good question, and if you are interested in helping us fund our 12 foot tall skeleton fund, uh, you can do so by buying merch on our, at our Redbubble store. Uh, it's, that's up on all of our social media, or you can just search Derazzled Merch on uh, on Redbubble. But yeah, check all that stuff out. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you to everybody. Uh, we're fucking exhausted. We're going to go to bed. Where we are sure to... Go, go to right to sleep. Go right to sleep. Ha <laughs> <laughs>